pastor was there. And uh, previously, Alan served for over 25 years at the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And among the many hats that he wore and the many ministries that he did, um, he ran their Shepherd School of Ministry. And together with Harvest Baptist of Blue Springs and some other churches in the Kansas City area and our church, we're partnering together to do the Living Faith Bible Institute. And so for the handful of people that are involved in that, um, the different pastors of the churches share the teaching load. And Alan is currently, for example, teaching a class on the pastoral epistles. And we meet on Saturday mornings and through live video streaming, our guys from this church sit and listen to his teaching every week. And so uh, they got a great church and a great ministry, and he's a gifted speaker. And I know you're really going to enjoy hearing from Alan. So let's welcome him. Amen. Praise the Lord. First thing I want to do, I want to give props to the praise team. Props to the praise team for doing, kicking us off, wrecking the house with Wren Collective. Because it's like, I've, no, I've not seen a, a worship team yet that had Wren Collective in their set. And, and I like that because the whole purpose of the praise team is to uh, get us ready for the Word of God by getting the blood flowing to our brain. And so whenever you sing a song that you don't know what beat to clap on, that's a good thing. <laughs> and I preached down in Juarez in August, and it's like they clap on every beat, and, and that's cool because then you're never clapping on the wrong beat, and, and, uh, and it gets the blood flowing, so praise the Lord for that. And, and I have to say, I'm, you know, I'm standing up here, I'm very intimidated because it's like, you know, Pastor Bartell called and asked me to do a missions conference, and, and I'm like, but hold it, you are, you not only know missions educationally, you know it experientially, and, and you know, some people, some pastors go to the mission field because they fail as pastors, and some missionaries come back and pastor because they fail as missionaries, and you're neither, and, and, and you really know missions, and so, and so just call me John the Baptist, because I'm like, I, I have need to learn of missions from you. And he said, no, suffer it all to fulfill all righteousness. And, and so I said, I said, okay, and, but not without prayer. So go ahead and stand again. Grab your neighbor by the hand. We're going to have a word of prayer. Stand and grab your neighbor by the hand. I know you're saying, well, what, what, what's up with this? Grab my neighbor by the hand. <laughs> but my thing is, if, if we're going to call ourselves one body and never act like it, what's up with that? So I could go all literal on you and say, turn to your neighbor and give him a holy kiss, but don't do that. Do not, do not do that. Just grab their hand and let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning, and Lord, I, I just lay out there before you, uh, God, all my insecurities in, in, in preaching to the, at this church, to this crowd. Um, God, this is... A, this is this is a pulpit uh, where uh, there, there are tough acts to follow. There are big shoes to fill. Over the years, all that you've done, and uh, God, I don't, I don't know, so many times, Lord, it's not that I'm not prepared and I come, but so many times I know you take things in a different direction than even what I was planning. And God, feel free. All I can say, Lord, all I can say is that if these people will be will be open to your spirit, then I'll follow your spirit, and that's all I know. And so, God, we give you this time together. We ask that you would speak to our hearts together. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 
So praise the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. If you, uh, you know, if you take any pictures, Instagram them. Uh, and make sure you hashtag, uh, hashtag ReachConf2015. I need some more good pictures of myself because I don't have a selfie stick. And somebody, <laughs> somebody said the other day, look, if I ever buy a selfie stick, beat me with it. So... Um, Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2, which is an interesting story about Moses leading Israel through the different territories and facing the different kingdoms on the way to the promised land in Canaan. And over and over again, God says to them, "Uh, look, don't pick a fight with these people, they'll defeat you. Verse, Verse 5 says of the children of Esau, which dwell in Mount Seir, meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land. And if you look down at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 2, it says, And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession. Verse 19, go down to verse 19. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession. Do not pick a fight. I'm not going to give you victory. You leave them alone. So there are these other ancient peoples all along the way that God is protecting. So so all I can say is don't mess with Texas. And and if you mess with the bull, you'll get the horns. But then they cross the river Arnon. God says, okay, this is the place to start fighting. Watch, verse 24. Rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon, which the, the name Arnon means line of perpetuity. And I don't know, we might call it today... The event horizon, uh, uh, it, is, it is what uh, I hope that this first message for this entire conference will be. But, but in a sense, it's, a, it's the line, you cross this line, and over this line is what belongs to you in continuance. And now it was supposed to become the border between Moab and the tribes of Reuben and Gad. And at verse 24 says, Behold, I've given into thine hand Sihon the Amorite, King of Heshbon and his land begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. Moses, you're, you're the general of the army of this fledgling nation, and you are their George Washington. Go lead them into battle, because I'm assuring you of total and complete victory if you just step out and you lead. Kind of like uh, Iraqi, uh, uh, America against the, the Iraqis in the first Gulf War. It's like it's, like it's going to be no contest. Now, what would you do? I think you or, not, you or I, we'd act a little bit cocky, and, and we might even send, send them a messenger that says, look, your days are numbered. They are so numbered. I mean, I'm, I, I'm back. Hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> and you'd invent some motto that'd become iconic and live for centuries. And strangely enough, Moses does not do that. And I think within the, woven within the fabric of this story, you see the reason that Moses is, re, is referred to as the meekest man on earth, because meekness is strength under restraint. Watch, verse 26. So what did Moses do? I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Kedamoth unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through thy land, I'll go along by the highway. I'll neither turn to the right hand nor into the left. Thou shalt sell me meat for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. <clears throat> I'm not going to take the business route downtown. 
uh, will travel the outer ring of interstates, and, and as God gives us the backstory to this story, it seems like <clears throat> Moses is in a state of what I will call scriptural dissonance. Okay, scriptural dissonance is when you read the Bible and it seems like it says something that maybe doesn't totally make sense. Maybe, maybe even something that seems to contradict some, something else that's said someplace else. Because God told Moses, go fight Sihon the Amorite, take all his land. And so Moses sends a message and says, hey, look, can I just pass through you guys like I did all the other nations? I mean, I'll even pay you for my food and water. And y'all are not yet feeling me like I need you to, because uh, your halo's on high and it's about to blind me. So you need to go green today, turn it down a little bit, because we all run into times when we read the Bible and it is, it is scriptural dissonance. Okay, look, watch. Can I give you an experiential exegesis of scriptural dissonance? Because I, I just need to explain from your own experience what we mean by what's happening here, because... This is, I can't, I can't, you can't reach if I don't stretch you. And if I say what you've heard already at every other missions conference you've been to, then, then you won't be stretched. Therefore, you won't reach. So, so some of what, what is said may sound a little scripturally dissonant, but, but look at this. Number one, sometimes there's scriptural dissonance because the Bible's a true story. So the Bible doesn't write things the way they should have happened. It writes them the way they did happen, and that way we know it's true. So first, the Bible's a true story, but then on the other hand, this is number two, sometimes the Bible has scriptural dissonance because it's inspired and not invented. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit means God, as the divine author, is able to insert information that forces us to read between the lines, forces us to look behind the scenes before we can get a complete understanding of what's going on. That includes a story like this because it illustrates exactly what God says about Moses being the meekest man on earth. So it's inspired and not invented. And then third, third, sometimes we find scriptural dissonance because we, we're not willing to believe the promise to the point of acting on it in faith. We just do not trust what God says is going to happen or could happen. And instead of living a life of conquest, because of confidence, we live a life of compromise. And that causes us to claim that there is scriptural dissonance. So it's not because we don't know how to read what God says, it's, it's because we don't trust what God is saying. Watch, look down in verse 30. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. When a person hardens their heart against God, then at just the right moment, God hardens their heart against him. And that same thing happened to Pharaoh 40 years before. He, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. Now God finally says, look, I'm going to go harden your heart to seal things. <clears throat> I can tell you've made your decision. Now I'm going to seal it so that you cannot go back. Verse 32, then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. God knew that someday the United Nations would exist, and so it couldn't be a war of Israeli aggression. The others would have to be the attackers. And so Sihon, like all good Arabs, he tries to sweep the Jews away. That's what his name means, it's to sweep away. 
in that moment, God gives them complete victory. Now watch, because this next verse ought to pop off the page to you. Verse 36. From Aror, which is by the brink of the river of Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even unto Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all unto us. So if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're saying. Look, Alan, I don't know who told you I was going to be here today, but you're about to scare me. And this gets really scary to me because sometimes I come to church, I come to this church, not to attempt, but just to attend. I mean, I just come to attend, not to attempt, and I just want my thing because I want to do it my way. I'm just kind of like Sinatra like that. And so sometimes when I come to this church, I just, I just want to be left alone. And then sometimes I'm looking for something personal, and, and yet something personal expands to something bigger. And all of a sudden, the Bible gets bigger on me whenever it's preached here. And I can tell this is one of those Sundays, and it's about to get scary on me. I mean, when I come, when I come to this church... I see the scriptures are not only a handbook on the human life, they also give insight on the big picture. I mean, some, some fool posted on Facebook a few weeks back, said, when I was young, I used to imagine what superpower I'd most like to possess. And it was usually something like flying or being invisible. Now, I think I'd like to be able to take away another person's pain. And I thought, okay, well, you've just eliminated redemption but, but all right, let's leave Jesus out of this because maybe he's an exception. It's still stupid because the Holy Spirit uses struggle to make you strong. The, the Israel did not go to the promised land by way of the Philistines. God kept them in the wilderness to get them ready for warfare because God's providence uses pain to give you power. And the Christian life is, is a life of meaning and hope because... Okay, track me on this. God takes your trauma and he puts a trajectory on it that reaches into eternity. And we're going to talk about that tomorrow night, God's eternal purpose. But God takes your trauma and he puts a trajectory on it. It doesn't end in this life. It doesn't have to all be right in this life. It doesn't have to be okay in this life. It doesn't have to be solved. I don't have to be healed in this life. Some things can't be explained in this life. That's all right. God's shooting for eternity. He's not a shooting for time. He's shooting for an eternal purpose he has. So if you feel like, but you know, I really can't live with this, you just need to understand, God's trajectory hasn't peaked yet. So you just need, you need to do what God tells you to do, keep hanging on. So, so I know what you're saying. Look, Alan, I come to this church. And the sermons give me insight into the big picture. And then your sermon is trying to take me out of my story and put me into God's history and, and connect me to the grand scheme of God's activity in eternity. So don't let me leave here till you tell me, how can I stretch so far that I get a vision for the whole world? How can I get the uninvented, inspired Bible to open up to me about my present circumstance and how it's valuable for world vision? I'd be glad to help you out. Uh, just give me a second to unpack this passage uh, in Acts chapter 1. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Uh, we'll, we'll get our healing, clothe ourselves with this truth, and leave ready come back tomorrow night and, and talk about God's eternal purpose. Because 
I want this missions conference to do four things. Cast a world vision, call you to surrender, challenge your personal service, and then create support for missions. So let me, let me, let me look at this passage in Acts chapter 1 because we, I believe we have scriptural dissonance because when we read what God intends to say, we say there's no way. There's no way God could want something that big out of us. I mean, this isn't even Philadelphia. It's new Philadelphia. And we're only first Baptists because, you know, that, that split that came from us a while back would then have to call themselves second Baptists. So whenever you cop an attitude like that, you choose to compromise over a life of extraordinary co- confidence that brings conquest. So here's my thesis for today's study. The mission of God is to win cities. And I'm going to take that verse in Deuteronomy 2, verse 36, and then I want to prove my point in Acts chapter 1. So here's the question from the pulpit today, and the answer to it, your, the answer that you must personally give will either prompt or prevent revival in this church. Is there any city you think is too strong for us? Are you reluctant to believe what God wants you to do? Acts chapter 1, down in verse 6 says, When the apostles therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom is Israel? Now that you rose from the dead and you live in a glorified body, which happens to be able to pass through, through walls and through solid matter unhindered and travel at the speed of thought throughout the universe, is it now? You're going to establish and restore Israel's kingdom. And the, and the short answer is no, but the point Jesus makes is, why are you even asking that question? Okay, wait, because I know why you're not feeling me. You let your house payment go two months ago because of those four blood moons that were coming. And, and that fourth <laughs> blood moon and... Now you've got to pay all those interest charges, and you already thought, Lord, you were coming to establish your kingdom. Where are you? You know, the stock market's still up. Oh, okay, so, so verse 7, he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. And I understand, I understand all the dispensational aspects of that, but that's not my point today. My point is this. Don't worry about Israel because the Father's bringing her kingdom. I want you to worry about you bringing in my kingdom. So verse 8, but stop. Okay, because I used to be confused till I attended Schoolhouse Rock. And in Schoolhouse Rock and Conjunction Junction, I discovered the function (laughs) of the word but. And but is a contrasting conjunction that means... Here's what you should be worried about. But ye shall receive power. Now step into this story because Jesus has, he only has a few apostles left. I mean, they, they atrophied when they lost Judas. They went from 12 to 11, so the movement wasn't really booming. And then they're waiting in this upper room, sort of disoriented and running out of onion dip and... Jesus has been killed, but now he's alive, and that makes him nervous enough. But then he says, wait here till you receive power. But you will receive power because 
you've won what's behind door number one, and that's the Holy Ghost. Watch, verse 8. And ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And that seems like a wonderful promise, but if I had a choice between a visible, physical, glorified Jesus present with me and an invisible spirit being present with me, I might still choose Jesus. I don't know about you. And and that would be terribly short-sighted because physical Jesus can only be in one place at a time. Okay, wait. So I used to be slow too before I took an LFBI class. And, and so, so let me be kind and rewind. As a matter of fact, be turning to 2 Peter chapter 1. The Father is God every place at once. Jesus is God in one place at a time. But the Holy Spirit is God distributed to every person who's been born again. And until you get that, you will likely feel more comfortable following flesh and bone Jesus instead of up inside of me, invisible Holy Ghost. Especially when Jesus is saying, my Holy Spirit is going to haunt unholy you. Hello, somebody. See, 2 Peter 1, verse 4 says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Because the Word of God will do the work. And so that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And this is our first point for study. True spirituality means living an integrated spiritual life. And an integrated spiritual life means integrating the Holy Spirit into your unholy circumstance. It is acknowledging the Spirit's presence so that you have His power. Okay, wait, whoa, 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 not just W-H-O-A, W-O-E, whoa, because I just gave you the answer. Now, don't stop taking your medication. Okay, I'm not telling you to stop taking your medication, but I just gave you the answer. You don't have the Holy Spirit's power because you don't acknowledge his presence at the time that you need him. And the reason you don't walk in his power is his presence goes unacknowledged. Peter says God becomes integrated. He becomes part and parcel of our being, part of our essence, through the divine nature. Okay, back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, verse 8. Now we can get to verse 8. But ye, plural, shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, individual. And when the Holy Ghost comes upon you individual, then ye plural shall be witnesses unto me. So after the Holy Ghost comes upon you, the reason he will give you power is to be my witness about what happened to me. I died for sins. It's a finished work. I am risen from the grave. And you become proof of the existence of God to the lost. How do you prove the existence of God? By looking at a believer who's walking in the Spirit. I'm just saying, how'd you miss that all these years? I mean, that, that experiential argument's a lot better than the argumentative. It's, it's incarnation. It's not argumentation that convinces people. Verse 8, And ye shall be witnesses unto me, unto the uttermost part of the earth. And, and we, we get to the last part of that verse, and it's It's huge. And, you know, uh, um, here we are, about 500 families, I'll suppose. And here in Acts 1, this is only 11 people 
being told it is their responsibility to be the proof that Jesus died for sins to every single person across the planet. Now, you'll need a few more cappuccinos from the Reach Cafe for that, I'm just saying. Uh, God says to us today, the whole planet is your responsibility. So then he gives us the strategy, look at verse 8, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. Now, I don't know if anybody in here is a detailed person or not, but I'm all about the logistics, so I notice, I notice when the details are not done in my own house, right? So, so I'm a detailed person, but as a pastor, you also have to be a big picture person. And can I tell you from my own experience, verse 8 is big picture, picture strategy. It's not tactical detail. So it's like, okay, Lord, uh, couldn't you give us a few more logistics uh, on how we can make that leap from Jerusalem, the city, to all Judea, uh, and, then go, and then go across the tracks where you know no self-respecting Jew would go to Samaria, and from there to the uttermost, because I am sure you are only talking about entering synagogues for the Savior. I'm sure you're only about synagogues for the Savior. Okay, so here's his answer, verse 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they, were, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's his answer. Later, Gator. <laughs> the whole world is your responsibility. <laughs> and, and I submit to you today that it's not the ends of the earth that ought to terrify us. What ought to scare you is a starting point. Because Jesus says, be witness in the city of Jerusalem because that itself is the tactic. Okay, wait, because I think I said something. You just missed it. Uh, remember, what I am sh- trying to show you today is the mandate in one message, and, and watch, because here's our second point for study. The smallest unit from which Jesus measures the mission is a city. And, and you know, and, I, and, and again, I know I understand I'm saying something that right now in your mind you're thinking scriptural dissonance, but, but and that's because if I were going to do it, if you were going to do it, here's what I would have said. I would have st- said, okay, look, start with uh, Marty or Emily or Natalie because they're all nice. <laughs> well, not Natalie so much because she's not ready to play nice. But, but then you work your way up to their husbands. And then you'll have to take on their kids. And after that, you can expand to their coworkers and connections. And that's almost a containable vision. But that's not what Jesus says as he sets out the methodology for the mission. We have to be proof of Jesus and proof of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I know it sounds huge to us, but he says, start with your city. Just take the city where you are at. Now what amazes me is these guys take Jesus literally, and we have our ways of explaining away the literalness of the Bible so we can justify our own ideas. Turn to your neighbor and say, stop looking over here. Why are you looking at me? But if you or I were Paul, I think here's how all of our epistles would start. Let me just take like Romans 1.1 as an example. Here's how our epistle would start. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, unto Blake. And we'd be preaching from something like Paul's epistle to Waldo, wherever he is. And first Garth, with all his high friends in low places, and... And I know you don't believe me, and you may not believe, be believing Jesus, but just follow through with Paul. 
His whole life is about getting from Jerusalem to Rome. He's, in doing that, he spends three years in Ephesus. He spends a year and a half in Corinth. Somehow, Jesus drilled into his disciples that their job was to turn entire cities upside down. And for those who fell asleep in world history, Rome was the epicenter of paganism. Ephesus was the epicenter of idolatry and demonism and drug abuse and addiction. Corinth was the epicenter of sex slavery and child sex trade. Jerusalem was the epicenter of self-righteous religious legalism. And all these places were the headquarters of everything anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-evangelism. He went to the centers of influence of the world which knew not God. And this is your missions conference, and, and I'm sorry to crash it, but my name is Alan and I'm your friend. And, and, and I want all these pieces to come together this week because we've not necessarily been taught this in Sunday school. You know, the words mission, missions, or missionary are never used in the Bible. But in our Western mindset, we like to say, Jesus, just tell me what you want. Just tell me what you want, want me to do. But look, you've got to give it to me in a goal that's smart. has to be a smart goal. Has to be has to be specific, measurable, achievable, results-focused, and time-bound. I, I, want, I want you to know that whenever you say that to Jesus, Jesus looks back at you like you're crazy. I just want you to know that. And he says something like, uh, just read my Bible. Uh, because when we read the Bible, we find that his eternal purpose is just three things, but yet there are a lot of things involved in the mission. So, so I know we don't always hear it this way. You say, well, Alan, then why are you saying it like this? Because I can't get you to reach if you won't stretch. If all we were going to do this morning and this week was take our Bible and reread it, then why do you even need to have a missions conference? Uh, let me clarify, because I'm not saying that we can't send people out any place unless it's a city. Just like I'm not saying that we can't send people out only to reach the least reached. We need to send people out wherever God calls them. That makes it simple. We don't need to try and out-strategize God. I don't, think we're not, I don't think we're good enough for that. But what I am saying is that in 1950, there was only one city that had more than 10 million people, New York. By 1900, uh, by uh, uh, 2000, there were 10 around the globe. But as of this year, there are a staggering 28 megacities. Over a hundred cities that have five million people or more. I mean, it's almost like any city of, of a million or less as a metropolitan area is just a town or a suburb today. And yet, yet if we know anything, uh, you know, the practical point is a, anything over 10,000 is really a city compared to biblical times. So we're way behind in this tactic of reaching the cities. And all we got to do is start with the one where we're at. So while human history began in a garden, it ends in a city. 
Okay, and I know you don't believe me, but I, I've been told you'll believe the Bible. So turn back to Genesis chapter 4, because this is the first place the city is mentioned. We come right out of a CSI true crime drama. So some of you will relate to this. And Cain kills his brother Abel. And things are not going well for the fledgling race. Uh, so God and Cain have a conversation. And Cain says, I am not my brother's keeper. And God says, that's because you're his killer. They didn't even have guns back then. I'm not, you know, maybe, maybe gun control, whatever that is, maybe that would slow down or, or reduce, I don't know, but I think, I think it's not a gun problem, it's a heart problem. And I think the reason is hatred that it happens, and if the reason is hatred, then the only solution is love, and the only way you can define that really is in the context of John 3.16. So, so, so God says to Cain, look, I'm going to make you homeless. You're going to wander all your life. Cain says, that is way too much for me to bear. God says, no, I'm going to protect you and not let anybody do to you what you did to your brother. Verse 16, and Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden because the best movie plots are always out of the Bible. Verse 17, and Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son because... Rather than name it after the God who created him, he wanted to name it after the son he had created. And this is a declaration. This, this place is a city where Cain rules. I defy God in terms of that judgment on me that I was going to wander all my life. So God's people have had attention with cities ever since. And what God does is to flip that script and say, start with the city. Go to the city, start with the city. Capture the city, turn it on its head for me. Cain thought he could hide from me in the city. No, go find everyone who's hiding from me. Whenever we want a word to describe someone who does not know God or want a relationship with God, we, we always call them a pagan. And so you would think that pagan would root out of something related to idolatry or the wickedness of cities. But the word pagan came from the Latin pagus, which meant a country district, an outlying area. And so a paganus was a country dweller. <coughs> paganus was a hillbilly, a, a mountain man, a survivalist, which means someone who lives on the farm. Well, how did that come about? Because Jesus gave a mandate to start with the cities and spread out from there. Therefore, the outlying areas were the last to be reached. So Christians went from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Antioch to Ephesus to Corinth to city to city to city, targeting Rome. The cities became the most affected by the gospel, so going to the ends of the earth meant going to the last reachable city. And then all other people will connect to God as they come into the city. So the people living furthest from the cities were called pagans. Now, here's your problem with my message today. I can feel your resistance, Luke. And your problem is, if, you know, if I told your kids or young, young people to go to Africa, go to Albania, go to South America, it would be easy to say no to them, and it would be easy for them to say no. But if I say, pick a city and go to a city, they might say yes. And, and, and then when would you see your grandkids? 
we say you don't want to move to the city because the city is where your children get all tempted and corrupted. Move to the burbs or even better to the country. Isolate yourself, insulate yourself because that's what's safest for your faith. You can't send your kids to a public school. They'll become pagans, which is of course impossible because to go to the city to become a pagan means you're going to the city to become more country, which doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like playing a country record backwards and he gets his dog back, his wife back, and his truck starts up again. And <laughs> so the question from the pulpit today is, what would happen if we once again began to believe that the smallest acceptable unit of transformation, the smallest unit for which we ought to measure success for ourselves, is in how we impacted our city? Because here's our third point for study. Discipleship's not just about leading followers. Discipleship is about training others to become a leader like you. Can we expect a city to be filled with the presence of God through the people of God and the truth of God by the preaching of the Word of God? See, today most of us connect with the church for what it can do for us. Instead of looking for a church that is saying, here's what you can do together with us to reach our city and then send cross-cultural ministers to other cities and other places across the globe. See, we, and we cover for that by saying that we're looking for the perfect church. No, you don't want a church that's the perfect church. You need a church that's going to perfect you. Not the perfect church, but a church that will perfect you. Now let me open a window on that word because I've, I've traveled more than I wanted to over the years and I used to collect hard rock cafe pins. Now don't judge me, it was just something to do. <clears throat> I've since switched to lanyards, okay? I've, I collect lanyards, but the hard rock franchise I noticed has a separate pin for every city in which they have a restaurant. And the most valuable ones, I, I probably have stuck on an old backpack someplace, they're the international ones, Bangkok. Budapest, Kuala Lumpur, Penang, London. I mean, hard rock goes to all these cities and they immediately try to communicate to people with these custom pins saying, we belong, we're a part. And they break it down to the city. And the thing you cannot put on the pin is the thing that we, we should be doing, reaching the people. And you can't put the people on the pin because that makes the pin obsolete because the pin is static and the population is always changing. But we can't leave the people out because that's the mission and the church should always be reaching a changing population. It makes no sense to me for a church to say, well, we've got to move because our neighborhood changed. And I'm like, what the what? You have to move because your neighborhood changed. Now, now, tell me how that fits in with what the Bible says. Um, so why don't you change to reach the neighborhood? I don't, I, I don't understand. The, the greatest opportunity you have in this church is to love people. That's the greatest opportunity you have in this church. And And so... The question is this, are you willing to become a new Antioch, a sending church 
to reach other cities. And I'll confess, I came to Harvest three years ago. And it was a church that, it was a wreck. So I had to ask, how can God even use a church like us? I mean, I don't think I have enough influence. I don't, I don't think I have enough time. We don't, have, we don't have a TV program. I mean, we're barely on the internet. But just to keep it real with you, I had to ask, maybe I don't have enough concern. Maybe what I don't have enough of is faith. So, so, so if you at least want to hear before you make up excuses for why not, how to reach the city. And let me take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I want to show you, before we raise up out of here today, how to reach the city. Anybody want to hear this? Just say, show me, Alan. Okay, look. You know, you've, you've heard some preachers say, well, they're preaching to the choir. I'm pre- well, I'm preaching to the choir. I'm preaching to the praise team. Because the praise team would say amen to that. And the praise team, you know, would say, show me, Alan. So, but but it's, all, it's cool, because I will take silence as consent. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, look at verse 14. There was a little city, and few men within it, ours. And there came a great king against it, and besieged it, and built great bulwarks against it, Satan. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, us. Yet no man remembered that same poor man. Then said I, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise men are heard in quiet, more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. How do we reach the city? First off, notice if you will, this is number one. Grow in wisdom. And apply our lives to the city that needs to be reached. And God will use us. God will use us. And it it doesn't all rely upon knowledge. But but you you bet take a LFBI class. I'm just saying. You you better get an institute. Uh, Because Solomon's problem wasn't his wisdom. Solomon's problem was he didn't walk in the spirit. Well, how did, why did Solomon end up the way he had? He was the wisest man on earth because he didn't walk in the Spirit. We have an advantage. The Holy Spirit walks in us. So we, don't, we have no excuse. So Solomon seems to be saying, look, it doesn't matter how much money you have, power, position, prestige. What matters is how much wisdom you have. And we would say, we would add in from the New Testament setting how much of a walk in the Spirit it gives you. And nobody has more Bible wisdom than churches with a faith-based view of the Bible and an understanding of biblical authority and training people in biblical discipleship. So second, second. On the other hand, if you want to reach the city, how you treat what you have determines how much more Christ rewards you with at His return. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable about a king who gives uh, each employee the same amount of money and says, look, earn a profit before I get back. 
And it's a big picture type of strategy that Jesus gave his apostles. He didn't say invest in stocks. That's tactical. He didn't say open a shop. He didn't say put it in savings. Look, do whatever you like, but utilize the talents you have to increase profit for my enterprise. The king entrusted them with his resources if they were faithful to use what they already knew to take what they already had and increase the enterprise of the king. Then when he got back, they were entrusted with cities to rule. How many of us have limited what God wants to invest in our life because we're not faithful in the small things? Because it's not the person with the most talent that makes the biggest difference. When you talk about pure human influence, God trusts those who have been faithful with what he gave them. And this is our fourth point for study. The context for a miracle is always prior sacrifice. If you're not willing to serve and give yourself to God, you should not be surprised if nothing miraculous ever happens to you. Shamanala, Rhonda should have bought a Honda. Look, I don't believe speaking in tongues is for today, but if I did, I'd do it right there. Master came back, see what they did with what they were given, and, and, and in the midst of citizens who did not want his leadership... That is how he knew which servants could be, could be trusted. In the closing line of Ezekiel's prophecy, if you have time, you might be able to get there at chapter 48, Ezekiel 48, it describes the city of Jerusalem during the millennium after the second coming of Christ. The restored Jerusalem with the rebuilt temple will be about five and a half miles in circumference. And verse 35 of Ezekiel 48 says, it was round about 18,000 measures and the name of the city... From that day shall be, the Lord is there. What would happen if we started fulfilling the mission in such a way? New Philadelphia and Akron and Canton and everything that's connected could have the subtitle, City of the Lord. Lord's in that city. Oh, that, oh that's, oh, First Baptist of New Philadelphia, yeah, the Lord is in that city. And because you and me, our church together, is, is proof that God is, proof that the gospel is true, proof that salvation is real, God is in that city. So third, God puts you in the place where he wants the city to change. Now turn to, finally turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, and then we'll raise up out of here. Where Israel was disobedient to her mission, and so she was dispersed. And she was sent across the world in slavery. By Jeremiah chapter 29, it seems like there's no hope left for Israel. But I want you to let these words sink in your soul. Verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to another city, Babylon. What do you want us to do when we get there? Build ye houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. 
So in the final analysis, if you'll look down at verse 11, verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So, the, so in the final analysis, this is number four. We must love the city we are in, and we must love them to the Lord. Many of you were born here. You could say that, you know, you are in this city and now in this church, uh, maybe by accident, but others of you moved here on purpose, intentionally from other places, a job opportunity, a relationship, a school. But why should someone from another country or another state have more of a sense of purpose or destiny than somebody born here who's lived here all their life? And if you're a believer by being born again, then this is our final point for study. You're either called to this church to become proof of God to this city, or you need to move where you are. None of us should be citizens of the Lord who secretly hate His Lordship, and secretly hate His kingdom, and secretly hate the sacrifice, and secretly hate what it would cost, and secretly hate the work, and therefore we take what he's given, and we put it in our bag, and we hide it in the earth, until we either we die or he comes back for us. If you're here, you are called to be here. And if you're called to be here, you're called to become a witness to this city. You say, Alan, but I don't know if I feel like even with what you've told me, that I really know how to do that yet. That is the key critical importance of tomorrow night, where we talk about the eternal purpose of God. You need to begin building fellowship around ministry. This city needs proof that this church is a place where Jesus saves, God is real, love prevails, and that is the mandate in one message. Every head bowed, every eye closed, every Christian, please pray.